So I wanted to take time this morning to discuss the purpose of the church and the purpose of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I felt like today was a great day to do that because it's not often we're doing baptism and the Lord's Supper in the same Sunday. And so uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you already know all these answers. That's wonderful. But I've always found that it's good to have reminders of why we do those things, because when we lose sight of the purpose of what things are for or why we do things, I think sometimes we begin to distort how we should work through those things. And so uh, if you're taking notes this morning, my sermon is structured pretty simple this morning. Uh, The first is we're going to look at the purpose of the church. Then we're going to look at the purpose of baptism. And then we're going to look at the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And while we're looking at the purpose of the Lord's Supper, we're actually going to take the Lord's Supper together as a church. Uh, And I'm so excited to do that with you this morning. Um, And if you are somebody who, uh, whenever you take notes and whenever you, uh, you track what's going on in a sermon, maybe some of you are like me. If a, if a pastor gives, uh, these, these bullet points, you kind of see them as checkpoints in the sermon. Like, okay, how long is this thing going to be? Uh, I can, I can tell you that's not going to work today because the, the first point is a lot longer than the other two. So, Uh, Don't trust that this morning is your trajectory for how long this is going to be. So may God's word edify and encourage us this morning as we look at these different items and witness them in practice. So the first that we're going to look at today is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. If you got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. This is where we're going to live for the most part, but we are going to also be going around to other passages as we look and discern what is the reason why we meet, what is the reason for the local church. And so to understand its purpose, we need to first understand what is the church. And Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there are many places in Scripture that we can look to when we talk about what the church is. There are many places we could look, but honestly, we could probably have an entire series dedicated on the church. There are so many things about the church that we can look to in God's word from what, what did it look like for God to dwell among his people in the Old Testament to uh, its origin, its history, its purpose. However, to keep things simple this morning, I want to look at a good broad picture of what the church is and what it's meant to be. So the first is, if you look at verse 19, is the church is comprised of people who profess faith in Christ. The church is comprised of people who profess faith in Christ. So we look at verse 19. He calls the the church in Ephesus. Oh, this mic's on. That's what it is. Okay, I need to use this because this is not working. Ah, Okay, I get it now. Awesome. Okay, (laughs) thank you so much, David. Um, And it's red. Look at that. Okay, great. (laughs) Sorry about that, y'all. Um, I wasn't picking up what he was. I thought he was having me lean a certain way, but I couldn't quite get it. So thank you so much, David. And thank you for your work that you do back there. That's it's a lot of work to run the tech stuff. 
Uh, as a tech guy myself, I, I know your pain. <laughs> so uh, going back to this, the church is comprised of people who profess faith in Christ. And when, when Paul talks about uh, the, the church in Ephesus, he talks about the people he's addressing. He calls them once alien and strangers. What do we see at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2? In Ephesians chapter 2, at the very beginning, we see Paul describing how people are before they come to Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and they're basically alienated to God. They are sinners, and they are destined to be apart from God forever. And Paul uses this language of death to describe our condition earlier in this chapter because it's a very apt description. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, that means our flesh and bone lives and we do things and we interact, but our souls, our spirits are dead to God. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's no amount of work. There's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of of finances that can save your own soul. The only one who can save your soul is Christ. And so Paul uses the language to say that we are made alive in Christ through Christ Jesus and that we are a workmanship made to do his work for his honor and his glory. But then in this passage, in verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. So he describes people who were once dead in their trespasses. But how does he describe those who are now made alive? He says that they are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God members of the household of God. Where do we see that same language? If you remember our John series, if you've been with us as we walk through the the gospel of John, you'll know at the very beginning of John, he calls those who would believe in Christ children of God. They're in God's family. In uh, Romans 8, 14 through 17, it says this about those who are saved. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when you are saved, when you become a Christian, you are then in the family of God. You are a fellow heir with Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and God no longer sees the broken, dead sinner you were. He sees his son, Jesus. And so we are adopted into God's family. We are brought in, able to call cry out, Abba, Father. And I love this language because it's not like a, a formal address of a father. It's as if you were a child who's hurt and you're going to your dad for help. It is a beautiful, wonderful, close-knit relationship that we get to have with our Creator God through Christ Jesus. But you probably have also recognized this language too. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says this, But you are a chosen race, or yes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Clearly, there's something different about a Christ follower. Clearly, there's something different about the members of a church. 
Members of a church are comprised of people who have faith in Christ. They have been saved from their sin. They've been brought into the family of God. And now they are in the church and they are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, being his body here on earth. And we'll go into that a little bit, a little bit more, but clearly there's something different about members of a church and clearly it is Christians who profess faith in Christ. So what's the next thing? What else can we learn from this passage? The second is that Jesus, not man, leads the church. Jesus and not man leads the church. In verse 20, Paul calls Jesus the cornerstone of the church. Everything that the church stands on, stands on Christ and stands on who he is and how he lived and what he came to do. Without Jesus, without his death and resurrection of the cross, the church is really just a group of people that hang out. Right? Our purpose, our, our drive, our strength, our, our wisdom comes from Christ. And we are to act as His hands and feet here on earth. And I know that sounds a little strange, but when we are described as the body of Christ, we are described as people that are meant to serve and to do the things that God calls us to do, to reach the lost, to serve people, to care for them. That is what we are called to do, to enact God's, God's will as He desires that this world would know him and love him. And so Jesus is meant to be the one who leads that church. Listen, as much as I love being your pastor, this is not my church. I don't own this building. I don't own this church. My name is not on the deed. At least I hope it's not. And Christ is meant to lead the church. He's meant to lead every church. Pastors and elders are meant to be stewards in the way they lead. But the final authority of the church does not rest on men but it rests on Christ. Now this impacts how we make decisions, where the hope of the church lies, and who we are to imitate as we interact with the world. Jesus is meant to lead the church in every facet and in every way. Now as a pastor, someone who's currently leading a church, this means that when I see my role at FBC Greenland, I I see this as a stewarding role. God has entrusted me to this body to lead for this season but I ultimately answer to Christ. And in my role is to steward this ministry well and to care for it well as if it is not my own, because it is not. Now, does that not mean that I I can't lead or make decisions? No, I can, but the ultimate authority is, is in Christ, and I need to follow his example, his wisdom, and his discernment as we walk through and make decisions as a church. It changes the way I lead, and it changes the way I make decisions. And it should change the way any pastor or elder or deacon makes any decisions as they seek to lead well. Now, there are a ton of examples of where this has been distorted and taken advantage of. And I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to, you know, give you guys these examples. I don't wish to bash anybody from the pulpit. But I don't think if you don't, if you look hard enough, or maybe not that hard, what you'll find is you'll find there are some people who lead churches, but they lead them as if they are the final authority. They lead as if they are the messianic figure. They lead as if they are the Christ, as if they are the one who makes all the decisions, leads with authority, and all the hope rests on their shoulders. And then what happens is when that leader fails, because ultimately man will fail, then people are in the wake of their destruction. And honestly, it looks a lot more like a cult than it does a church. So Jesus is meant to be the leader of our church. What's the last thing we can understand about the church? 
In Ephesians 21 through 22, he says this, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This last point, as we talk about what is the church, is that the church is all believers and not a building. The church is believers and not a building. Paul makes a statement about how we are a temple and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. What does that even mean? That sounds a little strange. Maybe if you are either a new Christian or you've not heard this before, this might sound a little strange. What does it mean by we are a temple? You probably have heard that your whole life. Your body is a temple, so don't do this and don't do that. But then, you know, like when I was a kid and I would always hear that, I'd be like, okay, great. But then I'd, I'd down a whole pizza by myself. Like, that's not treating my body as a temple, I guess, in that way. <laughs> but in the Old Testament, I'll give you a little bit of, of history. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God dwelled in a temple or tabernacle. So the Spirit of God didn't necessarily dwell in all who believed in Him as it does now. The Spirit would go from person to person. We would see that a lot when it came to the prophets, or if you go to the book of Judges, you see that happen with a lot of different judges who are leading Israel at the time. The Spirit passes from one another to another. It worked in a different way than it does now. But God would dwell with His people through structures and things He called people to make. And in Exodus, we see the presence of God would be in a cloud over his people as they entered the promised land. But when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he changed all that. Jesus was this new dwelling of God among his people. And when Jesus was killed, if you remember what happened when he died on the cross, the veil in the Jerusalem temple, this super thick, no man could tear this thing up veil, trying to tear like 40 phone booths at the same time, it ain't going to happen, tore in half. The veil between the temple of God and man was then broken with the death of Christ. This barrier, this veil between the dwelling of God and us was no more because of Christ Jesus. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on all those who believed. And since the Holy Spirit dwells on, and since then, the Holy Spirit dwells in every person who professes faith in Christ. And so, In all that we see of the church, we see that the church is not a building. We see people whom the Spirit of the Lord dwells in. That is the church. When we look at the New Testament, when we look at the examples of of Paul leading his church, the the people would meet in various different locations. Yes, maybe they had a central meeting place, they had a building, or they went to an amphitheater or whatever, but ultimately the church was not a building that could be destroyed. It was people whom God dwelled in through his Spirit which means the church can never be destroyed. It can truly never be destroyed. So what does this mean for us? Well, the first is, if, if all who know the Lord and all who believe in Christ are a part of the church, are members of His body, are those that seek to serve and honor and love Him, then that means that churches of similar convictions and doctrinal beliefs should not neglect working together. Churches shouldn't be treated like restaurants that are competing with one another for more customers. And when I was growing up here in this church, that was the most frustrating thing when I would see other churches do that. Like, I never understood why churches couldn't partner together. It just didn't make sense to me. It didn't click. Whenever I moved to Warren, Arkansas, and my wife and I sought to do ministry in that area, anytime we tried to do anything with another, another church, it was like we like killed their dog. Like, it was like, no, we want nothing to do with you. Like, 
you, you're that church in town. You, 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 know, you guys have a facility. We have this facility. We want nothing to do with you. And these were churches not only in the SBC, but in our association. These were people that, that we should be partnering with, not competing against. And I would have people that, you know, would, would ask me this question. If we had students that would end up going to this other church or another church in town, they'd go, oh, are you not going to try to get that student back? I said, why? I'm like, they're going to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. They're in a new relationship, and their boyfriend or girlfriend goes to that church, and I can't control that. But I can still love and care for them, even if they aren't necessarily are under the care of our church. Like, they are, they are in a healthy, Bible-believing church, and... and and I've had people in my life that I very much have cared about who are no longer either in my church or were in my ministry, but I still connected with them. I still cared for them. I still prayed with them. I still met with them because the, the care that I have for individuals and the shepherding role that I have is not bound by the walls of these church, right? And so for us, we should not neglect doing things with one another. Now, granted, there might be some doctrinal differences that maybe may not make that wise, but that's okay. But for the most part, we should be doing things together, partnering with one another, helping lift each other up as we seek to care and shepherd our communities. And I think there's just far too much division, even just within our own SBC. It doesn't make any sense, right? We, we should be seeking to care for the lost together as much as we can. That's why I love being a part of the, the association that we're in is because I feel like we do do things together. We share resources. We pray for one another. We care for one another. And, and you know, with us right now at FBC Greenland, we have other churches that have been helping in different capacities. We have a church we're talking about partnering with. We have another church who gifted us $10,000. We have another church that entrusted us with one of their pastoral residents to come and fill the pulpit while I was gone. That's three different churches right there that we've gotten to do things with. At Westfest, we did things with other churches. Like, there are, there are ample opportunities to do things with others. At FCA, there's other churches represented that we do things with. Like, we cannot treat our church like it is a, a restaurant or a business competing with somebody else. Because we are not in the business of poaching church members from one to another. We are in the business of saving the lost and caring for this community. That is what we are meant to do as a local church. The church is not meant to be one where we just seek to find all the Christians and gather them in one place. The church is meant to share the gospel with the lost and fill this church with people who, who don't know Jesus and are newfound Christians. That's what we should be doing. That's what our goal should be. So what else does this mean for us? One, we should do things together. We shouldn't neglect to meet. The second is it means our building is a resource. It ain't holy. And I, may, I don't know if I, if I might be hurting some feelings with that, but this is a, a resource. This is a building. This is stick and, and, and drywall and wires and copper, right? This building at some point is going to fade away. It's going to go back to dust. This, is, this, this building is not where the church resides in. The church is in us, which means that if at any point we decided to go meet in the gym, that doesn't mean that we're not having church anymore. It just means that we're meeting in the gym. Or if we did it outside or, you know, I feel like COVID taught a lot of different churches this truth that a church is not a building, that this is a resource. Now, we are called to steward it well and to care for it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to do whatever we want in the sanctuary and turn this into like a playhouse. Like, that's not what I mean. But what I mean is that when we see the church not as resources, but as people, 
and we see what we have as resources to use for means to an end, then it helps us to make decisions on how are we using our resources best to enact the mission of the church, which is to exalt God, make disciples, and serve others. When we see it in that right way, then it changes what we do. And so this very basic description of the purpose of the church to exalt God, make disciples, and serve others is a reflection of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 9 through 20. And it says this, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe you all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission that Jesus gave us before he ascended into heaven. That we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. And we're given this reminder that we don't have to do that alone. Charles Spurgeon said this about the purpose of the church. The church is not formed to be a social club to produce society for itself, not to be a political association, to be a power in politics, not even to be a religious confederacy promoting its own opinions. It is a body created by the Lord to answer his own ends and purposes, and it exists for nothing else. That is the purpose of the church. So now what is the purpose of baptism? So we talk about the church. We've talked about the church a lot. So then at the end of the day, okay, why do we then, why did we baptize somebody here? And then why are we about to take the Lord's Supper? Well, the church practices two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We call them ordinances or sacraments, depending on your background or or how you know these words, because we believe these are things instituted by Jesus for Christians to observe and to practice together as a church. The first of these is baptism. And as Baptists walking through John, talking about John the Baptist, talking about Jesus being baptized, we are very familiar with baptism, or at least maybe a tad familiar with it. Like this is not language that we've not talked about before. But we baptize as an external expression of what we believe has already happened in a person's heart, right? This baptistry is is a huge blessing and it's awesome, but there are, there's nothing in the water that has power, right? Do you know this water comes from the city of Greenland? It goes through a heat pump and it cycles and it did that all weekend. There is no superpower to this water, right? When Sean got baptized, he didn't gain some sort of superpowers when he came out, right? Or anytime someone's been baptized. I was baptized in these waters. Many of you were baptized in these waters. And we may have physically have not changed as we exited those waters. But here's what happens. When somebody becomes saved, they are then enveloped with the Holy Spirit. But then what we do in baptism is we show everyone as a public profession of faith what has already happened within. You know what it kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of a wedding, right? At a wedding, you gather in front of your your friends and family and you, you say your vows and then you're married in front of those that you love. And then that, then you're married. Now, granted at that point, you've signed a license, then you're legally married and you're married under the eyes of God. But, you know, ultimately for a baptism, it is a external expression of what has happened within. There's beauty in what it celebrates and what it represents. And so the next is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper is the second ordinance of the church. 
We do this in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross and as a way to reflect our own walks with him. But why the Lord's Supper? Why not reflect on Jesus' sacrifice another way? What makes the Lord's Supper so special and so unique? We take the Lord's Supper ultimately because Jesus told us to. (laughs) He said, do this in remembrance of me. This was one of the things that we're told to do, right? Like when Jesus tells you to do something, you better do it. He's the final authority. This is the reason why we meet. This is the reason why we're a church is through Jesus. So we better do what he tells us to do. One, he told us to baptize and make disciples of all nations and, and, and reach the lost and to teach people those that, the, the things that he commanded us. And the second is he told us to take the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of him. At the Last Supper, before Jesus went to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and was given over to the Roman authorities, he told his disciples to take part in the supper in remembrance of him. This is the last time until Jesus' resurrection they were all together in this manner, breaking bread and enjoying a meal together. And then Jesus also gives us this vivid image of what is to come. He tells them that the hour is here for the Son of Man to be given and tells them what is going to happen using the bread and wine. Right? Like he says their bodies will be broken, his body will be broken for us, and it was on the cross. And then his blood will be poured out for us, and it was on the cross. It's a clear image to us now, but for the disciples, it wasn't so clear to them. They didn't quite get it. So the practice of the Lord's Supper, like baptism, has no magical powers, right? You know, I know there are some people that believe that the bread literally turns into the flesh of Jesus or, or whatever you drink turns into his blood, but that's, that's not what happens. This is, it's well scraped juice and crackers, but what it represents like baptism is incredibly important. It is a time to reflect on the condition of your heart. It's a time to see, okay, where am I at with my relationship with Jesus? Am I truly living in the way that I should? It's an opportunity to repent. It's an opportunity to remember and, and really dwell on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. Baptism is practiced by the new believer while the Lord's Supper communion is a continued practice throughout the life of a believer. It's something we continue to go back to over and over and over again. So here's what we're going to do next. We're actually going to take the Lord's Supper together. So at this time, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss Victoria to go uh, relieve our nursery workers and to bring them back. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and have my ushers come forward as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together.